Hey everyone, this episode is with our real estate lawyer, Jerry Gatto and Nick Carrazza. Many Rockstar members likely know who Jerry Gatto is because many members have used Jerry to close on their rental properties. But if you don't know Jerry, he's a great guy and super knowledgeable in real estate law and working with investors. In this podcast, we talk about recent bank draft and wire fraud scams where Canadians are having hundreds of thousands of dollars stolen from them when closing on properties. So we wanted to get the message out there to help people avoid these scams. We also talk about what Jerry is seeing on the streets in the real estate market what the founding principles of Canadian law are and how our law system works, which I found very insightful, and other pro tips from Jerry, like a clause you can include in your offer to purchase to protect yourself when buying a property and much more. When you join up as a Rockstar Inner Circle member, you get access to what we call our million dollar Rolodex. This is a Rolodex of reliable professionals and contractors like Jerry that we've painstakingly curated over the past 15 years for members to use in their own real estate business. It's available on the Rockstar members only website and contains 50 52 different categories of professionals who have been personally recommended by either us on the Rockstar team or by members who have worked with them. For example, we have second suite architects, bookkeepers, contractors, estate planners, handymen, home inspectors, lawyers like Jerry, paralegals, life insurance agents, mortgage brokers, property managers, home insurance people, accountants, tenant screening, everything you can imagine in between like roofers, kitchen installers, pavers, house cleaners, junk removal, rent collection, tenant screening software, flooring, decks, fences, sound control, need I go on? It's a pretty stringent process to get on this Rolodex and we don't allow just anyone on there. And if we find a valid reason to remove a contact, we don't hesitate to either. You get access to this entire Rolodex as a Rockstar Inner Circle member. If you want to learn more about the Rockstar Inner Circle and how we help people live life on their own terms, go to rockstarinnercircle.com. You can check out everything we have going on there. So without further ado, Jerry Gatto and Nick Carrazza. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Caradza. Are you ready? Let's go. Yeah. Okay, so we are live with Gennaro Gerald Gatto, and we're going to talk about all things real estate law, including fraud. There's, there's been some fraud talk. So what's going on with the wire fraud specifically? Well, a lot of, um, a lot of emails are being hacked. And I, I think it's called phishing or something. I don't know if somebody gave me the term. There's a term. term it's phishing spelled with a P-H. Yeah, yeah, P-H, yeah. right? And so what's happening is, and it happened to me uh, about three weeks ago, where I had a client's uh, void check to direct deposit the money into his bank account. We try to do that as a convenience to clients, we, you know, rather than them coming to, to our office to pick up checks. And um, I had his void check. Half hour before I was going to deposit the check, I got an email from his email to me asking me not to deposit the money into his Scotia account. They knew it was a Scotia account. They said, don't, please don't put it into the Scotia account. Can you put it into our TD account? Here's our, our banking information. Here's the name and everything, right? Um, the only thing that tweaked me, it, was, it wasn't his name that they wanted me to deposit. It said, put in my company's name. So, you know, for, as a lawyer, if I, if I owe money to Nick Carazza, he, he can't say, well, pay it to Rockstar. I can, but I need Nick to sign a direction authorizing me to make it payable to Rockstar. So I happened to call the client. And I said, Dave, I said, well, why do you want me to put into this account? He had no knowledge or information about 
this email coming to me asking me to do it. Um, so if somebody, somebody's trying to get us to put $100,000 into the wrong bank account. And I was at a seminar in um, the Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday. They, they run a, a, a two-day seminar. It's called the Law Summit for Real Estate. And this topic came up. And they're now suggesting when you're about to deposit money into somebody's bank account, pick up the phone call the person and don't call the number that's on the email that they're sending you because sometimes that's even fraudulent. You know, so if I have Nick's number and the email says to call, you know, 416-9233 and I know that's not Nick's number, pick up the phone, call the person directly and just confirm that the banking information that you have via email or um, by, by fax is correct. There's so much going on. There was a, there was an incident just recently where um, a client got an email from his lawyer asking him to put, I think it was $170,000, $180,000, said, you need to put it into my trust account today because the bank wants to see that I've got the down payment in my account. The client put the money into the bank account, turned out to be a fraudulent account. Clients now at one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, and there's no like when you put something on your visa or something. There's some protection there, but with that type of instance, when you're taking the money and putting it in that account, there's there's no backup. There's no you're insurance to it. Yeah, you're out of luck. You're out of luck. So, so how are they finding out? Like in your first instance with the closing? Well, they're get they're getting into they're they're hacking into your emails and they're li- following the conversations. So they know you have an upcoming property. That's, that's right. Yeah. They they so I had one. I just had one recently with the minister of finance. And they had to send us back a, a refund check for like $10,000. And the, the girl from the Minister of Finance called me and uh, sent me an email and said, hey, how do, you, how do you want me to send you the check? And I said, well, mail it to this address. And I gave her her address. Week, two weeks, three weeks, I didn't get the check. So I called her. And she goes, oh, I put it into a bank account for you. I go, what do you mean? She said, well, shortly after you told me to mail it, you sent me another email saying, don't send it, don't mail it. Here's my banking information. Put it into my bank account. So she went. Now, I I, I said to her, but the check, the account isn't Jerry G. Gattle Professional Corporation. It was some numbered company. I said, why would you do that? She goes, well, that's what your email said. So now I'm fighting with the ministry. They're going, well, it's my problem. I go, it's not my problem. You guys put it into the wrong bank account. But very, very um, important that clients being asked to put money into, into people's accounts, right, really important that they contact the person whose account they're putting into just to confirm that the details they have in hand are accurate. So we're saying to all our clients, before we go to the bank, because we do lots of times, we have clients deposit money into our bank account or wire money to us. So we're saying before you do anything, pick up the phone, speak someone to speak to somebody from my office, and just confirm that the banking information you have is accurate. This applies to everyone. 
like anyone dealing with funds. So investors, tenants, you know, we have to, we're going to send something out to our whole team. I, I went and talked to Serena right away. I'm like, if anyone reaches out to you to change direct deposit instructions, don't do anything. Call the company, call the information that we have on file. And then, because we're doing EFTs yep. regularly, right? Because yep. we're paying out different brokerages. And I'm like, well, how easy it would be for someone to figure out, hey, why don't I just get a brokerage email address from, Remax, World Pay, you know, whatever. Some some brokers and go to some of the brokers and say, "Hey, can you please update our direct deposit information?" Because they know they're always paying out commissions. And I'm like, "Oh, we got to watch this because exactly. this, this is going to be everywhere." Is this relatively new? This wire fraud, like this new angle? I don't think it's relatively new. I think what's happened is that it's just got a little bit more sophisticated. I think that's what it is. I think I think they're picking and choosing where the funds are now. Like they, they've realized that they have more access to information, and I think they go to where the funds are. Because what I what I learned is that on the you know if you heard of the dark web, yeah. right? You know, it can go online and do all sorts of crazy stuff. So there's my understanding is that there's basically when there's these leaks, these hacker leaks that that you know they they go to third party companies where you might have shopped online or something and they get some of your information and, and they, but they associate it all so there's these profiles and then there's people that will compile these on the dark web or they sell it back and forth information or something I don't know exactly right but there's profiles so like Anthony Molinero there's a profile and there's going to be his email address and there's all the information that they know through multiple leaks have been consolidated and you have this profile on the dark web so they know certain things about you that they can if they choose you as a target they might be able to figure something out and they might be able to, to get something from you. Wow. So that's when I, when you asked about how did they find out, I, I started thinking right away because I'm like, oh, are they seeing who is buying the property and then trying to see, link it up with like, do we have access to their email? But usually the, the buyer is not public until after, until it gets registered. So what, I don't know how they get, and then yeah, the lawyer, how do they find the lawyer? Is, my understanding is they're, they're jumping, <laughs> like for example, they're, they're watching my emails. So you think so that your email that got compromised? My and it was my. So what my my IT guys have now done for for me is they've done a um, authentication, two, I think two factor authentication, two factor authentication, where somebody other than um, I go on to my email, it sends me some kind of notification. But you know what? They broke into to to. to to the Pentagon, I guarantee my yeah. two my two, uh, two note uh, authentication is not going to stop them. But um, and it's not just like I said. I was at a seminar and they spent <coughs> at least forty forty five minutes just talking about the the fraud and they're targeting lawyers because lots of money goes back and forth, right? Banks are sending money. We're sending money to other lawyers, right? So a lawyer will say, "Here's my wire information." Okay, great. We'll send we'll send you the the six hundred thousand to that wire information. <laughs> so what what they suggested was, before you send anything, pick up the phone, call that law firm, call that brokerage. Go, hey, we've got CIBC. This is the information we have. Here's your account number. Here's is that accurate? Because it's you know it's one thing if I go to your to your bank to direct deposit the money, it, it's a little safer. So I go to the bank and here, here's Nick Karatz's money. And the girl can say, well, it's not his account. Okay, great. I, I can stop it. But wire, once you go to your bank and you, you wire it out, it's gone. You have no more control over it. So really, really, everyone has to be super, super careful to double check where money's going out. Because to Nick's point, if it's gone, it's not like... A credit card where somebody grabs five or six thousand dollars in your credit card, your your credit card will cover you. This you're out that money. Mm. We got a call once at the brokerage. It was one of our 
listings that someone took and then they put it privately online and, you know, and then they said it was theirs and they ended up wiring someone money for the property. And I was like, I'm sorry. You know, they, they were up in arms about it. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, this has nothing to do with it. It's, it wasn't us. Yeah. It has nothing to do with us. I'm, I'm sorry. I felt bad for the people. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a rental, right? And they were trying to get into the rental and that's, that's how they did it. And I just, I felt bad. But what, so it was what like one do? month's rent? Um, yeah, I didn't know what they ended up sending them, but yeah, probably one one or two months rent, depending on what those people convinced them to send, right? And he just, I was just like, yeah, it's, I don't know, man. People that take advantage of people like that and with these types of scams, it's just, it's just low people to me. I just, I, I just, it the, doesn't sit well. The other thing that, um, and this is more for for real estate offices, um, they've had a couple instances where someone will give you a big deposit check, right? For a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars on a big transaction, and then call you and say, "Oh no, the condition didn't get waived. Give me back my money, right?" And it hasn't cleared your account yet, and you're sending out the money. There was a lawyer in Toronto that the money got paid to him—a five hundred thousand dollar deposit. Client called him and said, "No, no, we're deal died. It's so send me back my money." He sent the five hundred grand. Well, guess what? Clients five hundred grand had never cleared and never did clear. It was all all a scam, and that's how they launder money as well. So they'll they'll dump money into your bank account, either lawyer or brokerage, right? And it, and when you send it back to them, you're actually cleaning the money yeah. for them. Oh wow! Yeah, brokerage used to be a big target for for laundering before FinTrack. Yeah, for that for exactly that. Just yeah. because so many big lump sum deposits are coming in and out of the trust account. Well, it's easier. Like it's easier to do a fifty thousand. You can clean fifty thousand at a time. How many places can you go and clean the fifty thousand at a time? Like make a transaction that big. Yeah, you can, or you can buy a larger house. You can put a hundred thousand dollar down payment on a, on a, a big house and be like, ah, you know what? Sorry, financing didn't come through. Give me the hundred okay. grand back. So. And all of a sudden, you take the money from Rockstar and yeah. go put it in your bank account. Anybody questions? Well, it came from Rockstar. Yeah. Nobody's asking. How, where, it's that easy where the to money clean? Like you can just take it from that. bank account A. <laughs> no ideas. Anthony. Don't get any ideas. Yeah, yeah but it's that easy. I mean, I guess you, you know, we, there's more things in place now. There's more checks in place and more questions. We have as a brokerage, we have to take more ID, and we need if it's through a corporation, we need paperwork from the corporation. So it's it's the FinTrack laws, the, the anti-money laundering laws from the government. You know, the brokerages, uh, you guys do all the same thing. The lawyers do the same thing. So. There's more, we have to be asking more questions than we used to have to ask. This was a number of years ago now, but, but it still happens for sure. But the, uh, the, the, I think the point you made about money orders um, or, or bank drafts yeah. is a big one because a lot of people um, think those things clear faster. And what I found out is sometimes they clear even slower. So if you're getting a money order from someone, or sorry, a bank draft, so again, from tenants or anything else, that thing might take, a full, if it's fraudulent and done well, it could take a, two, a full couple weeks before they find it, even if it's from a, one of the big banks here or something. So it's not like a, it's any slower. You, you need to let that, that stuff sit. It, it has to, it, 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 you have to be sure. And I didn't, I mean, to, to be honest with you, I didn't realize up until a little while ago, even a certified check, you can stop payment on a certified check. Mm-hmm. To me, I was always I was of the opinion that a certified check is cash. Yeah, I didn't Apparently, know that either. You can stop payment on a certified check. That's what I've been told. So you know, to, so somebody gives you a certified check, that's not the end all and be all, right? So if it's a source that you're not sure of, um, and that's how they do it, they give you something that's certified, which is actually no good. You go, oh, I got a certified check. I'm good to give the money back, and then that certified check bounces on you. Hmm. So what's the optimal way that you're collecting money now? 
Well, I mean, with our clients, we're getting we're getting certified checks from clients, right? Um, but I mean, a client that's buying a house, we're putting the house in their name. I mean, there's there's less chance of you know you've got a closing. I mean, the house is going into Anthony Bolinaro's name. Right? And they're giving you their deposit, and I know they've dealt with Rockstar, the Rockstar clients, or you know whoever they work with. There's a little bit more comfort, but the 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 ones you have to worry about is the ones that come in and go out really quick, right? And all of a sudden the deal, oh no, sorry, the deal fell through, right? I had one one of the lawyers in my office actually, not in my office, but one of my associates, you know, I had this guy call him and say, well, you know, I, I'm going to purchase a property. He goes. You know, it's going to be a $4 million purchase. He said, I'm going to send you the $500,000 deposit now. That way you've got it in your, your account when we make when we make the deal. Well, he, he came to me and I said, why is he doing that? And why would a guy give you a $500,000 deposit to hold? Oh, it just, just makes it easier. No, no. And it turns out that, I mean, he didn't end up taking the check. He went somewhere else, had it happen, and the guy was out five hundred grand. Oh my God! So there's you know stuff you just the point is you know what you have to dot your eyes and cross your t's you have to be super super diligent when you're sending money you have to make sure you know exactly where it's going now these numbered corporations is there a way of verifying who the shareholders of that corporation are like can't that be traced I think you can verify the directors. I think you could verify the directors, not the shareholders. I don't think that the shareholders, because the shareholders sit in a corporate, um, you don't have to register who the shareholders are. You have to register the officers and the directors. So couldn't that still be traced back if someone was like hiding well, behind? Well, I have to tell you, I, I, I was a little disappointed in our banking our banking institution because- Oh, Jerry, don't talk yeah. bad about the banks. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I, I, I had this this email that came to me that gave me this banking information from TD Canada Trust. And obviously my client said, no, no, it's not me. So I thought, oh, great, we got him. Right, we got him, we got, right? I go to Canada Trust and I go to the guy, they're, they're, trying, they're trying to scam me a hundred grand. You should look into this account because obviously, you know, it's a TD account. Somebody had to open it up. Guy goes, yeah, 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 we'll look at it for you. Mm. I never, I never heard anything else, and that's what they do. They'll open up an account, so they'll open up an account for two days, put the money, get it out, close the account. So that's the other thing they're saying. When you, when you go to your bank to put money in, say, how long has this account been opened up? If it, the guy says it's only been open for two days, something wrong, something wrong. You have to really, really be careful because that's they call. So you know, when I went to TD. I thought the guy was going to say, great, you know, we're going to call the police right away. We're gonna... ah, he goes, yeah, yeah, we'll look into it. We'll get back to you. I never heard a word from anybody. Oh, wow. What else are uh, what else you seeing on the streets? I mean, with the rates going up in the like, over the last year, in the fall, people were screaming like, this is it. There's power sales. And we saw the numbers. We shared the numbers before during the local market update before just how power sales were trending upwards. And they're higher. Higher, but, but, but not, not not crazy, not crazy. No, so you're I not mean, seeing anything come across. I mean, there's probably one or two, but nothing yeah, yeah, crazy nothing, across nothing your desk. Crazy, that, nothing crazy. I mean, I've I've had a, I've had a couple purchases on power of sales recently, but nothing. I mean, not. I'm not seeing ten or fifteen of them. I'm seeing the odd one here yeah. and there. Uh, nothing crazy. ID still a big, uh, you know, uh, a big uh, a big problem on mortgages. You're shocked and how you know typically. 
when we close the transaction, we ask clients to make sure Canadian passport and driver's license. Those are the best two pieces of it. You'd be shocked at how many people don't have that. So, you know, you come... But they don't have their... Pa- you mean they, they didn't bring it to your office? a driver's license or it's expired. The passport's expired. Hasn't been renewed. The driver's license hasn't been renewed, right? So, and you send it to the bank and the bank rejects it. Bank won't take that ID. Especially if they're elderly people, we're finding that. So, you know, I'm saying to everybody, guys, you got to... When, you, when you're dealing with somebody... Ask to see their ID. Make sure it's valid. Make sure it hasn't expired. And if they don't, they got an expired driver's license, you got to say, get your butt into Service Ontario and get this renewed, right? Passport, get it renewed. Now, I can't do it now because we're on strike, but that's okay. Um, but, you know, really important because a bank, with the amount of fraud that's going on, you've got title insurance that has to be satisfied because they're insuring against the fraud for the institution. So they're they're being diligent in their review of all the ID, and the banks are being diligent in the review. So, you know, I always, real estate agents, guys, you know, make sure that you see the client's ID. You guys have an obligation to look at their ID, correct? I think you only have to see one piece, though. We do. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So with us, we need two pieces. And, you know, if you don't have the two pieces, you're not getting a mortgage. Would they accept those temporary ones you kind of get in the meantime before? Yeah, we do. That, that's what we do. But you have to, that's what I'm saying. You have to get there. You may not have your valid card, but as long as you get your card, it's expired and they give you the, um, they, like a sheet there that's saying it's been renewed and stuff. That's good enough. Um, but Canadian passports, especially now with, you know, the restrictions on foreign investor purchases and things like that, right? They, they really put an onus on the agents they put an onus on the realist, on the on the lawyers to make sure that people are Canadian citizens, so that because if we make a mistake, we can get fined. Yeah, isn't it great that they make these rules and they say, okay, here's a new rule. It's up to you guys to figure it out. Yeah, go figure it out. And by the way, if you don't figure it out, we're going to fine you. Yeah, so ten thousand dollar fine. Yeah, yeah, figure it out. <laughs> so yeah, it's a good system. So I'm, yeah. I'm always saying to clients, you're going to buy a house. Make sure you got your ID in place. You know, and if you don't have a driver's license and you don't have a, a passport, you can go to Service Ontario and they do have ID cards. They're government issued ID cards. Looks very similar to a driver's license, except it's an ID card. All it is is it's got your picture on it. It's issued by the government of Ontario, and that's acceptable. And you would get that if you don't have a passport or a driver's license? Yes, yes, yes. Is that like a PR card or it's entirely different? It's no, just, no, it's just a, it's an identity. They call it identification. Yeah. I think it's $40 to get or something. It's nothing ridiculous. And it looks, if you look at, I think it's pink instead of blue. The driver's licenses are blue. These things are pink in color, I believe. The provincial ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the provincial ones. ones. Yeah. Okay, I think, yeah, I think I saw those ones from a tenant applying for a property or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, and like it, it's just strictly ID. Because you can't, if you don't have a government issued photo ID, you're not buying a property in Ontario. Yeah, and your health card you can't use. No, health can't, can't use health card. Yeah, that is weird. Why can't you use that? For no me? idea. They never let you use it. Yeah, I remember anything. from my, my security days when I was working at clubs, they're like, you can't bring in the health card. Yeah, yeah. You everything can't use it. Can't yeah. use it. Well, I think, I think the reason, and it's funny because other provinces let you use it. Ontario's <laughs> one of the only provinces that doesn't let you use it. I think the reason is because in Ontario, you can get health care just with the number on the card. You don't actually need the card. So if I if I got access to your number, I can get health care using your number. 
and that's why they don't want the cards because they don't want the numbers being hmm. banked. That seems you know, like an I, easy I, way to skirt yeah, the healthcare yeah, system. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I mean, I mean, that's the problem. Lots of clients. Here's my health card. Sorry, I can't take the health card. Yeah, can't take the health card. Yeah, just come up a bit, Jerry. Have you dealt with any cases of mortgage fraud? No, I just like, got, I just got off the phone. I just got off the phone with somebody. <laughs> Not yet, but in about twenty four hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got off the phone with one of my lenders uh, who was about to do a, a second mortgage on a property, and uh, he reached out to the first lender, and the first lender said, "You need to get a hold of the police because we think this is fraud." I just got off the phone before we started, so that's the first time I've ever run into that. Wow. Yeah, and we we we're try, we do a lot of private mortgages, so we're very uh, careful when it when it comes to to the um, to the to the ID that we get from the, from the other uh, lawyer, because obviously when it's a private mortgage, there's another lawyer involved. So there's somebody acts for the borrower and somebody acts for the lender. We typically act for the lenders, and you know we're, we're very diligent with what ID we get from the other lawyer, and uh, you know. What, what's the most common case of mortgage fraud? Is it people just, just like boosting stealing their numbers? Your ID, stealing your ID, and 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 uh, you know putting a mortgage on. You oh. know, I mean, if I get my hands on, if I get my hands on. Your ID, I can get my picture put, I've been told, I don't know this firsthand, I've been told, I can get my picture put onto your passport for a couple hundred dollars in Toronto. I can then go to a, a bank and say, hey, I'm Anthony Molnar, I own this property. Or the Italian Social Club in Hamilton. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah in the back, in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, and that's the problem. There was, there was a case just recently in the, um, in the, in the news where a young couple went on a two-week vacation, they came back and somebody was living in their house. Yeah, uh, their house got bad. sold. Yeah, their house got sold yeah. from under them. What even happens in that? Well, that, like, that's where title, that? we talked about title insurance. That's where title insurance comes in. And that's why it's highly recommended that, well, if you're getting a mortgage, you have no choice with title insurance. You have to get title insurance because the lender wants title insurance. But if you're paying cash for, for a house, I still highly recommend you get title insurance. And I know lots of people, oh, I don't need it. You know what? If you become a victim of it, you'll end up getting your your house back, your property back. You'll end up getting it. But you're hiring a lawyer. You're going to court. I mean, you're paying for all of those things out of your own pocket. Where if you got title insurance, they take care of it all. They hire the lawyers. They, they, they do. It's like car insurance. With the amount of fraud, like maybe... You know, a while ago, there, or maybe it just wasn't prevalent, or you didn't hear about it as much. Just there wasn't as much information sharing, you know, online and stuff. But with the amount of fraud that is going on now, or that at least you, it feels like there's substantially more, it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, absolutely, and it's a one-time fee. The title insurance is one. It's not like you have, you know, house insurance. Every year you get your bill, you got to pay it. Title insurance, it's a one-time fee. If you own a house for 20 years and you become a victim in your 19th year of ownership, your title insurance still covers you. That. Uh, on just on, uh, what was coming to mind, I was just thinking about you closing closing deals, and one thing that um, you've always been good at, or I've always liked about the way you handle it when you close deals in your office. Sometimes Jerry will just pick up the phone and be like, "Hey, let me get the other lawyer in line." You'll pick up the phone, you'll try to talk to the guy or girl, and just get it all sorted out and then move on. Versus the other approach that I've seen is that it's like, okay, well, we'll send a letter and the letter gets, you know, dictated and sent over to the lawyer and then another letter gets sent back. I'm like, what the hell? This is the slowest process, you know, I've, I've seen in a long, long time. What percentage of the lawyers you deal with when you're closing deals? 
I guess maybe when, when there has been issues that have come up and you've had to kind of get them on the phone, what percentage of them are willing to just kind of pick up the phone and have that discussion and get things resolved very quickly versus the ones that are still kind of shy away from that and wanted a very formal back and forth, you know, faxed or emailed dictated letter, you know, uh, to, to resolve things. Cause it just seems like so antiquated to me. Well, and the reality of it is, is that I, I find that the older lawyers in the bar that have been doing this for 20 plus years have no problem picking up the phone and talking. Right. No, you'd think it's the opposite, right? Yeah. And I find the young guys, Email, you know. Uh, text message? Text no. Message. Don't tell me you guys are trying to can, get, no, get so deals closed over text message. I've got lawyers. Put it to me in writing. Just let's talk about it and let's resolve it, right? Yeah. I mean, to me, my philosophy has always been as a real estate lawyer is my function is to get the transaction closed, not to kibosh the transaction. I've got a purchaser that wants to buy. You've got a seller that wants to sell. Let's make it work. And, and not everybody that does real estate has that philosophy. Some guys, unfortunately, want to make it look like they're superstars and, you know, they can nick it. There is problems, and sometimes the deal can't close because of a, of a problem that cannot be resolved. But I've always had the theory that if the two lawyers get together, between the two of us, we can figure out a way to make the thing work. If you've got two willing parties, why would I try and kibosh the transaction? So what's an example of what a lawyer would do to kibosh it if they're trying to be like a superstar? Well, you know, there's, I had one just recently where there was a, a, a mortgage registered in 1993 that had never properly been taken off title. They just forgot, right? Because years ago, I mean, years ago, what would happen is if you paid off your mortgage, the bank would send you the discharge in the, in the paper, in the, in the mail. And they might put in the letter that you had to take it to the registry office or take, but lots of clients, lots of clients, they look, oh, great, I got my, my mortgage paid off. They put it in a closet, right? Not knowing that there was one more step that they had to fulfill was take it to the registry office and get that document taken off title, Right? So sometimes we close a transaction, especially people that have owned the house for you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Right? They might have an old mortgage that was paid out in. Oh, this one here, they've got it last week, closed in 1993. Now, the other lawyer, he called me. Right? We spoke right away. I said, listen, I'll try to track it down. I said, we both know it's, it's been paid out. There's no, there's no way a mortgage has been sitting there since 1993. Right? hasn't been paid out but the problem is you've got to actually get the paperwork now this lawyer was willing he said jerry if you give me your undertaking that you'll t he could have said sorry sorry i'm not i'm not closing unless you get that mortgage off what, what's that mean you're undertaking like you like you, you you under you you say you're taking responsibility Don, for it. i promise you i'll take this off it may not be today and maybe in a week and maybe in two weeks i mean and that's how most transactions close like if you know you sell your house and you've got a mortgage on your house to cibc well i'm not going to have the actual paper from cibc to take that mortgage off i'll have a, a statement from cibc saying that you know nick Carazza owes us one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right. So I send that letter, that statement to the other lawyer so that he sees that we've got 
something from the bank. And then I give him my undertaking that I will actually register a document that takes that mortgage off title. And sometimes I've acted for a purchaser. I'll have a client call me and say, oh, you know, I went to this guy. He says, there's two mortgages on my property. Well, yeah, there's two mortgages because you only closed 30 days ago and there's still a mortgage to TD and your, more, and your new mortgage was with Bank of Nova Scotia. But I've got this lawyer's undertaking that promises that he'll take it off. And if he doesn't take it off, my recourse is to contact the law society, right? And, that, and that's why I have to use lawyers because you've got the law society that backs up that undertaking. So if that lawyer dies, that lawyer you know, files for bankruptcy. That lawyer gets disbarred, right? I still have the law society that covers that undertaking to get that mortgage off. And that's how transact, unless it's a private mortgage. If it's a private mortgage, you actually need the discharge on the day of closing. Because I mean, if you close, you know, you not, Nick holds a mortgage on a property and I pay Nick out, right? And Two days after we close, he hasn't signed the discharge yet, and God forbid something happens to Nick. Well, I got nobody to sign the discharge, right? When it's a CI, the CIBCs of the world, you, you don't have that to worry about. But the law society requires if it's a private mortgage, you must register that mortgage on the day of closing. So, you know, if, you, if you're acting for a seller and you see that there's a, a private mortgage, you need to reach out to the other lawyer, you need to make sure he has a discharge ready, right? So that it all sort of happens simultaneously, right? You get the mortgage off to him, you get the check off to him, he then registers his discharge and the purchaser's lawyer then registers his documentation. So it all happens uh, simultaneously. With an institutional mortgage, the, the lawyer is entitled to take an undertaking that you'll have it removed. One, uh, can I offer you thinking something? No, 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 no. Go ahead. Because one of the other things that you, you know, I learned from you that made life a lot easier when it comes to agreements with with anything was that to not if you're if you're putting in an agreement that some work needs to be done or there's some conditions about something and someone's going to take care of, of something to always put in what the penalty was or what are the consequences if they don't take care of that. And it's something that we've used time and time again now that's been so valuable because for anyone buying a property, and there's lots of people that will buy properties private, less so maybe in today's market, I, although it's picking up again, it's getting kind of more active, but when there's more private sales going on and people are doing their own paperwork and looking at their stuff, you can get yourself in trouble if you don't do things right. Like, you know, everyone should get things reviewed by a lawyer and stuff. A absolutely. But and it was so nice when you said, hey, here, so look, if you're supposed to redo the roof or replace the furnace or whatever, and if you don't, here's the consequences versus leaving it up to closing. And then it's like, well, get the agent to call this agent or get your lawyer to call your lawyer. And everyone's like, what the hell's going on? And it, you know, it just, uh, it, I know it makes your life easier, but it just protects everyone. Absolutely. And, and, and the law in the air is really clear. I mean, if I, I buy your house, Anthony, and we agree that you're going to change, you're going to put in a new roof before closing. Comes day of closing, client calls me, says, well, he didn't do the roof. Unfortunately, the purchaser must still close the transaction. He doesn't have the right to hold back money. He doesn't have the right to, to delay closing. He's got to close the transaction and then sue the seller for the cost of repairing that roof or, or replacing your new roof. And that's where instead we, we put... <coughs> as I said to, a, to to Nick and the team here, 
put a clause that says, hey, if it comes closing five days before closing, you haven't got that roof uh, done, I get to hold back $5,000 or I get to hold back $10,000. And if you don't do it within 14 days, then you forfeit that money. And if you make the penalty substantial enough, like if the roof's going to cost five grand, well, don't make it four grand, make it 10 grand. So now if I'm the seller, I go, wow, I'm going to lose 10 grand if I don't fix the roof. And they're going to be entitled to, there's some incentive to doing it. Otherwise, you know, the law is really clear. You have to close a transaction. You're not entitled to delay closing. I go, I go you know, I've had clients day of closing go in and go, oh my God, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong. And I say, that doesn't give you a cause not to close. The law is really clear. Mr. Buyer, close your transaction and then take the seller to court. The problem is they take the Isn't seller that, to court. That's cool, he's gotten, yeah. He's, that's moved, cool? To California. That's very he's cool. moved to California. How am I going to track down the seller? See, I, I, I'm coming from the other angle because when we were buying properties, that's I learned this the hard way, is you know that we learned this by, by being told, hey, you got to close. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm like, what do you mean? These guys didn't live up to the terms in the contract. So that's why I didn't look at it as being cool. I'm like, the guy said in the contract he was going to do this. It's not done. Why do I need to close? It didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, if that is a part of the contract, why is it any different than the clause? Like, why is that not enforceable? They broke well, the contract. It, it is enforceable. It is enforceable. But here's, here's the reality. Have, you have to go afterwards. Yeah, here, here's the reality. I mean, if you think about it logically, generally law is logical. Not everybody agrees, but generally laws. Yeah, laws. that's that's definitely up for debate. <laughs> but you know, I'm a purchaser. You said you're going to do the roof. Comes day of closing, and I go, mm, I don't like the way you did the roof. I'm not closing. Part of the contract that I've got to be satisfied the way it's closing. Right? Real estate would be a disaster. It's too right? subjective. I, 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 exactly. So the law is. Anthony, close your transaction. If you don't think he did a good job on doing the roof like he agreed to in the contract, your remedy is take him to court, go explain it to a judge. If the judge agrees with you, you'll be awarded damages, right? You don't like the condition the guy left the house. He was supposed to have broom swept. He's left garbage in the house, etc. Law says close your deal, get the thing cleaned up, Take your action to a judge, right? Explain to him what happened. If he agrees with you, he's going to give you a judgment against a seller. Otherwise, it would make real estate. So I got a client that kind of wants out of the deal. And he says, ah, oh, you know, he left, he left a bag of garbage in the house. I'm not closing. He didn't, he didn't you know, where, where's the limit? Where do we stop? One bag of garbage. The door handle is loose. Yeah. I'm not closing. It's not the way it was when I purchased it. Right? So instead of making it subjective, the onus is close and then seek your remedies. Now, if it's a problem, there's a title problem, right? The guy doesn't own the place or there's a lien that can't be removed. Different scenario. If it's, so if it's something that goes to the root of the, the title of the property, obviously you're not obligated to close the transaction, right? But if it's minor stuff, and honestly, you know, a $10,000 roof repair on a $700,000 house really is a minor thing. So what's the, where does the threshold lie then? Because if someone does, so I, at first I, I agree with you, like one thing that I think can be taken for granted in Canada specifically, if you haven't bought properties in other countries, you can take for granted 
that how easy the process is here and and it's for those types of reasons like it's it's very easy the number of transactions that go to like a firm deal to close it's like it's the percentage is very high like it's really nice that way but what what would it take for the it, it to be justified that the property the person not close so let's say and i'll just give you an example i don't know if this is true or not so buy a house uh, a bunch of rain comes in the week before and it's obviously like there's been pretty not severe like flooding in the basement but there's been a lot of water leakage where there's water damage across a good chunk of the basement and the you know the, the drywall's all moist and stuff like that so there's like a decent chunk of the home there's 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 tens of thousands of dollars of repairs now that have to be done right with the, the total extent a little bit unknown is it still like yeah tough you're gonna have to yeah. close and then move on yeah so where does it where does it like what if a tree falls on the house and knocks half of it down so house burns down Let's take an okay. example. The house burns down to the ground. You're closing on the property? Well, so in, in that particular case, <laughs> the house burns down to the ground. You still like this? You, you, you think it's cool? What's it, what agreement clause can <laughs> yeah. we put in? Yeah. Well, you, you was, in that scenario where the house burns down to the ground, you as the purchaser have the option. You can opt out to buy the house. You can say, no, thanks. I don't want anything to do with it. Because, I mean, what you bargain for is no longer there. Right. I mean, that's that's the reality. So that that's the extent. And that's a really, you know, subjective test. What's, you know, substantial. But I'm using a crazy example. The house burns to the ground or as the buyer, I can elect to complete the transaction. Right. And the seller assigns his insurance rights to me. So I negotiate with the insurance company for the, the rebuild of the house. So it is really a buyer beware yeah, yeah. scenario. No, it's very buyer beware. Very buyer beware. You have to, um, and that's why it's really important that you put, you know, tight, tight clauses into an agreement. One example, and I, um, six months ago, seven months ago, um, client owned owned a property, but there was a planning act problem, which lots of people still are not aware of you know i own house a and i own house b and they're both beside each other there's exemption there's there's ways around it but sometimes there's not i own both properties they're part lots on on plans of subdivision right they're abutting guess what i'm not selling part a as long as I, I, I retain ownership of Part B, I've got to go to the Committee of Adjustments and ask for a severance. Yeah, because they automatically are merge. put together. They merge. Did you know that? The title no. is they merge. If you own two, two properties side by side, two lots, I don't know if there's some exemptions or not, but for the most part, yeah. if you buy two properties, they, what, if there's a, what if there's a house on each property? Same thing. They It'll merge. still merge. So yeah. it merges into one property. So you can't sell. So you buy your neighbor's house. You can't then just go ahead and sell your neighbor's house. You have to go and get the lot severed. Because it automatically becomes part of why. What's the purpose of that rule? Well, yeah, what is the so, purpose? Of that? Well, ironically, when they passed the Planning Act years ago, it was passed more because you know I used to own a hundred acre lot, and I'd say, Anthony, here's two acres for you. Nick, I'm going to sell one acre to you. I'm going to sell half an acre there. And you know, if you go to some of the older parts of Toronto, Hamilton, like you'll see. A lot that a property that's like a hundred feet wide, and you see another one that's forty feet wide, right? Because there was no control. I mean, as the owner of the property, I could divvy it up the way I wanted. So when they passed the Planning Act, the idea was to say, no, no, before you split off any piece of property, we want to know what fits in to our municipal plans. We don't want a hundred foot lot 
beside a 30-foot lot. And we, we don't want, you know, the 30-foot lot. Or, so they wanted to be able to control it. And, and that's what the Planning Act was meant to prevent. Unfortunately, the Planning Act says, and I'm sort of rewording it a little bit, but the Planning Act says, I must sell everything that I own. I can't retain any piece of that property. So I can't sell my backyard to you and keep the front yard, right? That's a crazy example, but right? Just like once I own this property, if I own the one next door, again, there's exceptions to the rule of plans to sub the whole lots, you know, lots of things. But in older parts of, of Toronto, older parts of Hamilton, those two properties may merge, become one, and under the Planning Act, you can't sell, you can't retain one, you can't keep your backyard and sell your front yard. You've got to sell both pieces together. And lots of lawyers have, you know, have run into that problem. I had, a, uh, um, I had one where, um, the, you know, son comes to the lawyer and says, hey, you know what, my parents are getting older, I'm the only child. We're going to put my parents' house into my name so that way you know when they pass away we don't have to probate etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm not getting into the pros and cons of that but in this scenario that's what happened well the lawyer never bothered to ask ask the guy well do you own any other property well guess what he owned the house next door and the lawyer never bothered to check put the house in in the son's name right guess what those two properties then merged hmm. they became one so now Unfortunately, you got to go to Committee of Adjustments. And the problem with going to the Committee of Adjustments is not so much generally it's a slam dunk to get the severance, but it's going to cost you lots of money. And the properties that are there must comply with the current bylaws that are in place at the time that you're seeking the severance. So if you know, when I built the houses, when I built the house, the side yard requirement was two feet, and it's now four feet. I now have to go to the Committee of Adjustments and ask for a minor variance to reduce that requirement from, you know, four feet back to two feet. They, a lot of times the city will ask you to convey the, your front, uh, the front uh, part of your property for street widening purposes. They'll ask you to convey that so that they can make some conditions. Usually get it, especially if there's two houses there. But that that is a problem. So when we act on a purchase, right, when we act on a purchase, um, if it's a part lot, we always check abutting properties. We check to see if the owner currently owns any abutting property or if you own any abutting property. Because if you're buying your, your neighbor's property, you can't buy it. So if you own property A in just your name, you can buy property B in your name and your wife's name. So as long as there's, your name can be on both properties, but it can't be identical. So Tom, Nick buys property A, oh, okay. Tom and Nick can buy property B, right? But if Nick buys those two properties, they merge on title and you've got to get a severance. Hmm. How much does a severance roughly cost? By the time you're done, you're probably looking at twenty grand. By the time you, you got to pay legal fees, a planner, right? You got to bring the application. You're probably looking at twenty grand. How's that for a surprise? Yeah, damn. Yeah, and, that's and that and that would kill it. So we, you know, we were talking earlier about what would kill a deal. So if I do my search of title and I go, 
hey, Jack, your client owns both properties and it contravenes the planning act, you can't close a deal. I, as the purchaser, have the right to get out of the contract. Okay, so let me ask you something on that because this has come up recently just in a situation we were involved in. In that situation, who is their liability? So I'm the purchaser. I'm buying from Anthony. He was in that situation, didn't realize that the, the, the lots were, were merged and, and yeah. can't sell me this, the property we had agreed to. I'm like, no, no, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't want it or whatever. Or I'd be willing to close and I get the whole, I get both of them. <laughs> Actually, I score. Yeah, I score. So is the, I guess there's got to be some liability involved there. So in, that, in those circumstances, where does the liability, because I'm thinking I'm buying a house, I'm moving into it. I have my family, I'm moving into a house. I don't have a place to go now. Uh, there is no liability. It's no? Contracts frustrated. Now, as the, as the, as the buyer you can agree to extend the transaction until the person gets the planning act straightened out, right? So you have the right to say, well, I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to wait, you know, take it to the committee of adjustments. But say you go to the committee of adjustment, the committee of adjustments says, sorry, we're not giving you the severance. Mm. Your contract's frustrated. No one's liable. That's the end of the contract. But wouldn't it still have to go through? Like, wouldn't you be like, oh, great, I get this whole extra house? No. And I would be no, forced no, to no, sell it? No, 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 no. It's, it's no different than, you know, again, go back to my car analogy. Um, you know, I come to buy your car and, you know, we both think you're selling me a Volkswagen. It turns out to be a Ferrari, right? I'm, I'm not buying what, we're not buying what we bargained for. You can't. I can't buy both pieces of property off you when we when our contract only says part A. I I learned this. This was really interesting to me. And it's a big point. I, I think at least that I don't know how to word it. You would be able to word it better. But basically, you're not allowed to benefit from like an error. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, so mm. there, we had an example once where we sent, uh, this was years ago, so we don't do this. Uh, so I've only ever done this once, just for anyone listening, just very clear. But we sent um, a, a, a money to the wrong side of a party, right? Okay. They, the, the check went to the wrong person. So we, you know, it was after a deal had closed and um, the money went there. Uh, the check was quickly deposited. I'm sure they were happy to get the funds. And I think we reached out to you like, Jerry, what the heck do we do? He's like, hey, you're like, I'll send a letter. They're like, they're, it's actually, they're, like it was our mistake. And the check was made out to that person. They've done nothing fraudulent because they had a check in their name. They went and deposited it. But they're not, they were not allowed to keep that money. My understanding was they were not allowed to keep that money based on like an error on our part because they weren't entitled to that money, even though we gave it to them. So they were, the law actually requires that they return those funds. Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah. And so that's the same type of, that's the same type of thing. Yeah, and, and, remember, I mean, in can in, in Canada, we have um, equitable rights. We have legal rights that statutes, you know, cases, et cetera. But we have equitable rights, um, a sense of fairness. Like, it, it's not fair that because I made a mistake, you get to take advantage of it. Right. It's just hmm. that's actually really an good equitable that we right. Have that. Well, yeah. And it's an equitable right. Right. I mean, I, you know, we 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 made that mistake and the courts would rectify it. So if I take you to court and I say, hey, I, I sent Anthony one hundred thousand dollars by mistake. You can't sit there and say, ah, too bad. So sad. Right. I mean, a judge is going to go, Anthony, you got to give it back to him. Right. There, there's a just like 
you know, someone that does work, and, and I've used this with contractors, for example. Somebody comes in and, and does a bunch of work in your house, and he gives you the bill, and he says, you know, it's, it's 50000 You go, what do you mean? We, we agreed it was going to be ten grand. No, it came out to fifty grand. Well, he can still sue you for for the work that he did, even though maybe he didn't have a contract, but right? Because the law says, but Anthony, you've benefited from the work that he's done to your house. Now, maybe I'm not going to owe him 50 grand. I'm going to have to get a, a, you know, the drywall guy in to say, well, you know, it would have cost five grand to do this. I got to get the, the framer to come in. And so at the end of the day, I might owe the guy 20 grand, but I can't just say to the guy, nah, too bad, buddy. You did the work in my house. You know, we didn't have, we didn't have an agreement that you were going to do the work. I benefited from your work because you fixed up my house. You you know you put in new drywall, you put in a new roof, you put in yeah, you put in all new new uh, uh, trim. I still have to pay for that, right? I can't just say too bad, so sad because we do have we do have laws that talk about fairness in Ontario, courts of equity, which is way back in England, right? When historically you could you could go to the courts of the law where you'd say, hey, this is what the law says, and he didn't do this. Or you could say, well, the law doesn't really say this, but it's not fair that Nick takes advantage of my mistake. Hmm. And, you know, maybe we didn't agree on the price, but the fact of the matter is I did the work. You know, I painted the guy's house. I want 20. He only wants to pay me two. But let's see what's what's fair. And, you know, we can get some quotes and... That's the way our court system works. When does it make sense? What value does it make sense to start really kind of trying to go after someone, like file an actual lawsuit for someone? Because there's, I guess there's the filing fees, which isn't much. But I guess if lawyers get involved, if you're trying to, you know, I feel like I want to sue Anthony for five bucks. Uh, it's not five bucks, sorry. Five, five bucks, we're good. But for like $5,000, yeah. you know, is it, like, is that something that I would just like, ah, I'll take my chances. I, I file the paperwork. I represent myself. You hire a well, paralegal. Uh, like, you know, we do lots of times. And, and that's a, a huge problem. Sometimes you sit there and, and you say, ah, oh, you know, I wish this was 30 or 40 grand rather than 3000 bucks. Because, you know, as a consumer, you go, what do you mean? He ripped me off three grand. I want my three grand. And, and I think we talked earlier about the example about closing days. You know, I had a client once, and I talked about this in, in our little interview that we had earlier. I had a client, closing day, gets to the house. N- nobody's packed up. The guy ends up having to put his furniture in storage. His, you know, him and his kids and his wife had to sleep in a hotel for three nights. But the guy didn't end up getting out of the house until Sunday night. Let's sue him. I go, okay, so what are we going to sue him for? You know, 400 bucks to put your furniture in storage. You spent another $500 on a hotel. You spent another $200 for food. Okay, so you're out 1500 bucks. Is it worth the $1,500 to take him to small claims court and sue the guy? Now, the beauty of small claims court is that it is intended to be so that you can go on your own without bringing a lawyer or a paralegal. So, you know what? You're a principled guy. Go, no. What he did is wrong, and he should pay the $1,500. You can go to small claims court. You can, file. You can, you know, put your little story on a piece of paper, file it with the courts. They get the guy served with the documents, right? You go, you go in, and 
you have a settlement conference and you get some judge to give you his decision. But what's it, what's it cost to file? I think it's a hundred. It's only like a okay. hundred. And up to up to what's the limit for small I think claims? It's thirty. I think the limit's thirty grand. Thirty now. grand. Yeah, I think I don't know if it's gone up to fifty, but I haven't been small claims court in a hundred years. But and I think the, and, it's thirty or, t- or thirty, maybe even fifty thousand now. And that initial step is a settlement conference. Yeah, the first thing that happens is once you file, the the, the party that you're suing gets an opportunity to file a statement of defense, right? And then you both attend at what's called a settlement conference, where you sit in front of a judge and without really any evidence. You're not calling any witnesses. You're not calling anybody. You're not, you know, you're going saying, Your Honor, this is what happened. The defendant gets an opportunity to say, no, 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 this is what happened. And the judge would say, well, if I was the, the judge on this case with the with what you're telling me, assuming that, you know, plaintiff, you can prove what you're saying and defendant, uh, assuming you can prove what you're saying, I would rule in favor of the plaintiff or I would rule in favor of the defendant, right? And what he does in that case, he'll go, okay, Nick, you owe $1,500. Would you take seven fifty, Mr. Defendant, would you pay seven fifty? 90% of the time, right, the parties end up resolving but not always not always well we had a case here where somebody forgot to refuse to pay commission remember because it was oh yeah we had we had a case here where the 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 guy refused to pay the commission because the deal got extended three days and he blamed and he blamed the, the real estate agent. that's right yeah, yeah. Right? that was a while ago now I forgot. yeah, yeah. Uh, we, end, we end up having to go to small claims court and even the judge said and when we went to the settlement conference the judge said but the three-day delay wasn't the real estate agent's fault, right? It was the purchaser's fault. He, he you know, he was he wasn't happy with something, couldn't get his financing together. You, as a seller, why are you refusing to pay the commission to the guy that sold your house, right? If you if you feel that you've suffered some damages, your recourse is against the buyer, right? Like if I had some extra per diem, I had you know some additional carrying costs. You should be suing the buyer. No settlement conference. No, I'm not settling. We end up having to go to court, and that's right. I, I, and I think but, we offered. I think if I remember correctly, we offered to give the guy a thousand dollar reduction on his commission to settle it, and he said no. So in small claims court, if you make an offer, so typically in small claims court they'll pay a fifteen percent of your. So if you win $10,000, the judge, the judge can award you $1,500 for, for your costs, right? But if you serve an offer to settle, so if you say, okay, you're suing me for ten grand, i am willing to pay you, or I'm suing you for ten grand, but I'm willing to accept nine as a settlement, right? And you don't take that, and we go to court, and I'm successful in getting nine or better, then you got to pay me 30% of what? The, the oh, I didn't even realize that had happened. Yeah, you can. Yeah. So in our case, we offered to settle for $1,000, right? We offered to give the guy a $1,000 reduction on the commission, refused to take it, went to trial, got 100, 100% of our commission, right? And we end up getting. I think 30%. he was misled. I, I, the impression I got is that he was misled by his lawyer. I think he had bad representation, if I remember correctly. And the reason I say that is, I think some of the, if I remember correctly, 
some of the issue came with because of the, his delayed closing, the ex, the the amount of additional legal costs oh, was that? extreme. And I'm like, why is there like I I understand there's more work, but the, and even and even you had looked at it, like why are the legal costs? Why did they jump that much? It was like thousands of dollars. And I'm like for a three day delay in closing, I I have never seen that before. I didn't you know closings get extended all the time, right? Like, well, I I remember. <laughs> I remember my office was in Ancaster. The other lawyer was in Oakville. And, you know, typically if there's, if there's an extension, you know, there might be an additional seven, seven fifty, maybe $1,000 in legal fees for, for redoing the paperwork, a little bit inconvenience for the client. But to your point, I think there was like twenty or $30,000 in additional legal fees. And I remember saying to the judge, I said, I got to tell you, if you can charge 30 grand for an extension in Oakville, I'm moving my office from Ancaster. That's to right. Oakville. That's yeah. right. You did say that. I forgot. I said, do yeah, I yeah. move it to Oakville? Because the best I can squeeze is maybe $750. Yeah. Like it was, it was an astronomical, like it was a number that was like mind boggling. And even, even the judge said, uh, come on, it was a three day extension. Oh, no, but you know, I had to do this, I had to do this, I did it. And he had. And anyway, to make a long story short, um, I started chirping the lawyer. I remember when they left, when we were leaving the settlement conference, we were in the hallway and they were walking by us and I started chirping the lawyer and you were just like, Nick, Nick shut your mouth. I'm like, I don't know, I had to say something. I couldn't not say something, you yeah. know. Yeah. It's out of the courtroom, it's but, off record. Yeah, so I mean, small claims court is there and it, it is a dilemma, right? Like, what's that magical number? Is it five grand? that you bring in a lawyer. Like what we try to do, what my office tries to do, is we'll typically give a, a client sort of a flat fee to get to the settlement conference, right? We might charge 1500 to $2,000 and issue the statement of claim, get the party served, and attend the settlement conference, right? Because again, if it's five grand, six grand, I, you can't say the guy, we're gonna charge a four, Right. Well, okay. Great. I got, I got, I'm going to court for a thousand dollars. Right. So t what we try to do is because you got to service. Right. You got to give that. You got to offer your client that service. Right. So we try and do a flat fee. Get to settlement conference. Try and resolve it. Like I said, ninety percent of the times it gets resolved. Right. The the judges that sit in small claims court are really really good at getting the parties to try and resolve it. Right. Um, but once that's over, if it's got to go to trial, now you can't, you know, it's hard to give a flat fee because now all of a sudden, if you're going to trial, you're calling some witnesses, right? Typically, you're calling a witness, right? You got to cross-examine the, their witnesses. You got to examine your witnesses. You got to submit some, you know, so all of a sudden. There's time involved. Yeah, there's, there's time there's effort, more time. Yeah. Where settlement conference is a little, you know. It, it, it's a little simpler. Like I said, you're not calling any evidence. If it if it's Nick against you, we go to court. We're not calling any other witnesses, right? You give your story to the judge. You give your story to the judge, and he gives us his opinion. And that's all all it is. Is he giving his opinion, um, and that solves it. But if you go to trial, I I don't know what that. I mean, to me, I would say probably ten grand. I mean, it's got to be at least a ten thousand dollar claim. To it depends the circumstances, I guess. If you're and if you feel slight, like if you're really wrong to two, you know, the hard thing is you got to take the emotional side out of it. We've probably all learned. We've had all had our experiences where it's like, if you don't take the emotions out of the decisions, it, it can really kind of blur your vision sometimes, right? Yeah, and, and and you know, with lawsuits, you know, you burn me for ten dollars today. 
in eight months from now, it's not ten dollars anymore. Yeah. Uh, like okay, give me five. I'm right. Like I yeah. mean, that happened, right? I mean, mm. that initial like you know, as soon as it happens, wow, you know, I, I end up having to dish a, you know, six, seven months, ten months down the road. You're going okay. It's you know. I don't know if I could if it was like five thousand bucks and I could outsource it to like Jerry to get it. You know, ninety percent settlement rate up to that point for two thousand bucks. Like I would probably do it for the three thousand. Yeah, three thousand. Yeah. Or you can do like in that type of stuff. If it's very simple and it's a smaller amount, you could really yeah. file it yourself. Yeah, like it's not the like it's it's not the most time consuming process even yeah. either if you if you wanted to. And the settlement conference, like you said, is really a he said it's two versions of the story. And then the judge kind of, I remember with one of ours for something else, we were there. The judge looked at the person, um, the other person. He said, hey, is this, uh, uh, it was it was with, it was one of our early ones for the rent to own contract. Because yeah. we're like, okay, well, let's see if this thing holds up, right? Um, and they did. And we were telling, we started telling investors, hey, man, they've, they've passed the test. They've passed the court case. And the judge looked at, he said to the guy, I'm like, hey, do you, do you speak English? You know, do you understand English? I was like, yes. And he wasn't trying to be smart, but he was just trying to be like, is this, is this your signature on this agreement? He was like, yes. And then he basically said like, I would strongly advise you, based on what I'm seeing, I would strongly advise maybe not proceeding because it might not end yeah. in your favor. Yeah. He goes, it's up to you. Like he said, it's up to you, but he was just trying to basically tell him like, look, like this is all on the up and up. There's no, nothing yeah. fraudulent here, not, you know. Um, and then, yeah, we settled. Because the, guy, I think we the guy wasn't able to buy out the property with the rental income. You know what happened in this circumstance? The guy actually, he was there for years. He was a good guy. We got along with him. And then he got uh, some, uh, a girlfriend or something moved in with him. And then she's like, oh, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And his whole plans changed and everything changed. And he's like, you know, this doesn't work anymore. We, you guys need to do this for me, this for me. We're like, well, hold on. We don't need to do anything. That wasn't part of the agreement. You've been here for years. Everything was okay. Now, all of a sudden, in the last few months, you know, as she moves in, everything's a problem. We didn't say that to him. But in our heads, we're thinking that. We're like, no, no that was never part of the agreement. We're living up to our end of the bargain you know, we've actually been very accommodating to you. We've extended it for you. We've, we've done nothing wrong. And he felt like we had, and then yeah, that was it. Then they moved out and he wanted to sue us for the down payment and the credits back or something like that. And it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. It was, you know, we, we were very open and upfront, you know, like I've, another thing I've learned from Jerry too, is often when the judges, when it comes to legal thing, it's, you know, are you acting in good faith? Yeah. If you're acting in good faith and, you know, things like if no one's trying to take advantage of each other, it's like sometimes there's, there's circumstances involved and it's the way it works out. Like, you, I guess, like you said, I never thought of it like that, but the the, the law, I guess, on, often it's like it sometimes doesn't make sense, I guess, maybe to me on an emotional level or things, but it is very, it comes off kind of yeah. fair, and, you know, and, logical. And the term in law is it, <coughs> if you go to court with clean hands, if you go to court in cl with clean hands, that usually bodes well. Right. If mm. you can go to the judge and say, hey, that, you know, I've done this and, you know, and, and with the rent owns that are almost the thing of the past. I mean, there's not too many more. I think with affordability and rates, I th yeah. you know, I know they, may, they we, may end up coming back. Well, we just can't, you know, it's so hard to find property yeah, at yeah, this point, yeah. to be honest with That's you. Right. But but there's definitely, I got a call today from someone yeah. that, that was referred to us from someone in, like in like a long time ago and they're looking for a, a rent. They're like, yeah. hey, can you help us get into a property? Yeah, so, yeah. well, I had one, I had one, a rent to own and, um, the tenant missed the deadline on the on the closing. I'm supposed to close February first, and you know we'd been negotiating with them beforehand. Um, you know we again clean hand theory, right? I mean they need an agreement of purchase and sale in order to get their financing. We cooperated with them. We did the agreement of purchase and sale. We, you know we did everything in our power. 
to help them purchase this property. For a number of reasons, they weren't able to they weren't able to close. And I think like three weeks later, the client, the lawyer called me and said, "Hey, we're gonna close." I said, well, "My guy wants more money now." Well, what do you mean? I said, "Well, you know, this is when the market was going crazy." I said, "Well, the property's gone up." You know, probably at that point it had gone up 200. And in fairness to my client, he didn't want the 200, but he wanted a little bit more. You know, I mean, he thought the property's worth more. And uh, they issued a statement of claim against us, against my client, demanding specific performance that he comply with the terms of the um, option to purchase that they had tendered on us. And, and, uh, they brought a motion to have a certificate of pending litigation, which means they wanted to put a lien on the property so our client couldn't couldn't deal with the property. And, you know, to put a certificate of pending litigation on trial, all you have to do is convince the judge that there's a chance you're going to win. You don't have to prove to them that you're going to win. You just have to convince the judge there's a chance that I'm going to win this. And we went and... Um, First of all, the lawyer on the other side sent one of his juniors, because I think he thought it was really pretty straightforward, sent his junior. And I never forget, the kid, the kid goes to me, goes, well, you know, if we settle now, we're not going to charge you for, for our costs. I go, I don't think you're going to win. <laughs> I, I and I had said to my client, I said, look, if we get there and, and the judge says that they have, that they might be successful, I said, we'll have to regroup and decide what, what our next steps are going to be. Anyway, we, we argued, and uh, you know, I, I kept saying to the judge, the contract's really clear. Closing date was supposed to be February 1st. I said, just like the stock market, I have the right to purchase a stock. February 1st comes, my option to purchase expired. If I don't exercise that option by February 1st, I can't go to the Royal Bank and go, hey, I got an option that expired February yeah. 1st, but it's February 2nd. I'm, I'm going to exercise. The price has jumped up now. I yeah, actually, yeah, I'd yeah, like I'm going to go gonna exercise yeah. my option. Yeah. I, and I said to Judge, I said, and we cooperated. We came, we, you know, it's not like we did anything that would have thwarted the reference to close. That's, that's key. Yeah, right? that's, that's key, the right? Key, yeah. and, and unfortunately for these people, there was a variety of reasons. Anyway, we... We finished. The judge said, I got to go think about it. And it was a young couple. I, I felt bad for them. It was a young couple. Felt bad. Anyway, she was out like three hours. I'm thinking, holy smokes, a long time. And she came back and she said to them, she said, I'm doing everything in my power to let you win. But you have no grounds. Yeah. It, it, mm -hmm. it expired. She goes, and I can't get around the fact that. February 1st was the deadline, and you went to Gatto on February 21st. It was three weeks too late. And you feel, like you said, you feel unfortunate. That, 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 yeah, you, you feel bad. And, yeah. then I, and I forget that we had to argue about costs, right? Because the winning party gets their costs paid. So I stand up, and I and I'll get my cost. The other lawyer stands up and says, well, you know, here's our account. Da, 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 you, know, we're, the, you know, we're happy with this. The judge goes, no, 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 you lost. <laughs> He's not paying your costs. You're paying Gattle's costs. Oh, they really right. sent a, yeah, they like sent a he, junior. They, oh, wow. They, he was, he was in, in uh, disbelief that he'd actually lost this. 
And I mean, at the end, we ended up settling it. Like I said, my client wasn't a greedy guy. It's not like he wanted full fair market value. He just wanted a little bit more than what and they still client. got a deal. They still got yeah. under market. Yeah, yeah, right. And anyway, we ended up resolving it. The couple got that, you know, the couple ended up getting the house. They ended up paying a little bit more. But you know what? In the market, they still did okay. Huh. Interesting. Cool. Jerry, I, the one thing I'll just say about before, I don't know if there is something I think we might wrap. No, I think we can wrap. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just want to thank you for years, man, years. We've been working together and I know a lot of investors. I know Anthony, I'm pretty sure you've. Yeah. All three of my uh, properties. Um, you know, and, and just, and and not just for ourselves and people here, but sometimes investors will call and we're like, Oh man, we've never seen that one before. And we'll reach out for a quick, quick question to you so we can help the investors, you know, for, for other members, they may not realize the information is ultimately coming from you when we, we get it and stuff. So, uh, just, Thanks, man. And I, Thank and you I for appreciate everything. the relationship. You know, you so. know, I appreciate the. I don't treat you guys as business guys. You guys are my friends. And no, it's important. good. It's good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's nice when we can chat like this and just kind of see, just get different things because it makes us realize different things that we don't think about. There's always something we're learning, different claws or something like that. So, um, if anyone's going to listen, if, if someone's going to reach out to you, do we share? I guess what what's the uh, what's your my, website? My, my my website is uh, Gatto Law. My personal email. If you want, Jerry, to reach no, out. you're not allowed to. I'm not even. I'm forbidding you to hand out your. Personal <laughs> well, my, my yeah. office email is ggatto, that's G-G-A-T-T-O at gattolaw.ca. My office phone number is 905-304-5535. Any questions? Uh, Rockstar members, you get uh, preferential treatment. I have no problem answering questions. And, you know, that's part of building a relationship with clients. You, you know, I'm not going to send you a $100 bill. That's not my style. Have a question, give me a call. I said to Anthony earlier, you know, if you're purchasing a property and you want to have an initial meeting with me, that's included in my in my fees. We sit down, we do a little, you know, 30-minute chat, figure out how much money you're going to need, the process, exactly what you need to do to make sure that the, the thing works um, smoothly and it closes properly and there's no... And that's to figure out, like, closing costs. Closing costs, yeah, the process, who you have to call, what you have to do, you know, because... The, the, you know, as a purchaser, you got a, a few obligations. You know, you got to get insurance. You got to call utilities. You, you know, there's a few things you got to do. So we'll review, review all that. That way it goes nice and smooth. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put all that in the show notes. Okay. So appreciate it, Jerry. Thank Thanks you, a guys. A pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. Awesome. All right. So a big thank you to Jerry Gatto and also Nick for sharing their time. If you want to reach out to Jerry in his office, you can do so by emailing them at ggatto at gattolaw.ca or go to their website at www.gattolaw.ca or call them at 905-304-5535. And you can go to www.rockstarinnercircle.com to check out everything else that we do. So thank you so much for listening as always and hope to catch you next time.